0: Hello and welcome everyone to a special Ropes and Gray podcast celebrating Latinx Hispanic Heritage Month. I'm delighted to welcome you to the first in a series of podcasts that will feature prominent Latinx and Hispanic clients who have had remarkable careers in the legal industry, while also making significant contributions to their communities and working to advance diversity in the law. For those of you who may not be familiar, this Heritage Month actually spans two months. It begins on September 15th in recognition of the date when five Latin American countries, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua, earned their independence from Spain in 1821. Mexico, Chile, and Belize became independent on September 16th, 18th, and 21st, respectively. And what started originally as Hispanic Heritage Week in 1968 expanded to a month-long celebration in 1988. At Ropes & Gray, this Heritage Month is a period of recognition, education, and celebration when we honor the history, traditions, and achievements of Hispanic and Latinx people and communities. With that in mind, our podcast series begins with a conversation between Ropes & Gray Litigation and Enforcement Associate Natalia mercado Violan and special guest Lola Velazquez-Aguilu. Lola is lead counsel for Medtronic's brain modulation business. Her legal career has included public service in the federal government, big law, in-house company counsel, and high impact pro bono work. All the while, she has worked to diversify the judiciary at both the state and federal levels. She is on the leadership committee of the Infinity Project whose mission is to increase the gender diversity of the state and federal bench. And she was appointed by Governor Tim Wolf to chair the Minnesota Commission on Judicial Selection. Also, Quite notably, Lola was a key member of the team that successfully prosecuted Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. Her work on that case was described by former acting US Solicitor General Neil Katyal as as good a performance from a lawyer as I've ever seen in my life. Quite fittingly, this year, the Hispanic National Bar Association has named Lola its Pro Bono Attorney of the Year. Despite her extremely busy schedule, Lola always takes the time to connect with diverse lawyers and provide advice and mentorship. I know many of our Ropes associates, including Natalia, have benefited from her guidance. It is a great privilege to have Lola with us today to discuss her extraordinary career, her dedication to advancing diversity in the law, and her perspective on the challenges and opportunities for Latinx and Hispanic lawyers. With that, I will pass the mic along to Natalia.
1: Hi, Lola. Thank you again for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much. It's,
2: it's wonderful to be here, and thanks so much for that lovely introduction.
1: We are eager to hear and learn from you, so I'll jump right in. Let's start off by discussing your extremely interesting background. Can you tell us a bit about your roots and anything about your background that's made you who you are today?
2: Yes. Yeah, so I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. I was born and raised there. My parents are both Puerto Rican, um, and they met actually in Connecticut. My mom, who's from Puerto Rico, um, moved to Connecticut. She was getting her uh, practicum in social work and working on her master's degree. And my dad, who's New Eurecan, was an organizer for the Migrant Farm Workers Movement in Connecticut. My mom was working primarily with migrant worker populations and that's how they met. Um, and they had this shared passion and interest for social justice and service. Um, they ended up going to Wisconsin. My aunt was getting her um, PhD there from the University of Wisconsin, and my, my dad worked then in Wisconsin, still with farm workers, with migrant workers, and then with farm workers during the farm crisis. Um, and it's you know my my parents ultimately got divorced, but they both had very interesting commitments to social justice. My dad very focused on workers' rights. Uh, my mom became a police officer when I was in kindergarten, and it was you know an interesting application of her training as a social worker. She was recruited um, because of that training, um, and she worked as a as a neighborhood police officer for. you know, several years when I was growing up in pretty pivotal years. And so, you know, her work as a police officer was just very, very visible in our house. It's a big, you know, became a big part of my life as well. It wasn't just that she was a police officer in a particular community. She was a member of that community. So they knew her, but then they knew my brother and they knew me as well. Um, You know, so I think from both of them, it was always about service and this, I mean, the expectation, right, to quote Spider-Man, like to those who much is given, much is expected, uh, was very much a theme in our house. Um, and, and, you know, the, so, so they were always just bring my brother and I around to different community events and, um, and lots of different cross segments of the community as well. But the expectation was always, we would work hard, we would do well in school, and we would find opportunities to serve our communities.
1: That's incredible. And I'm sure that has led you, you know, to your path now. You've been a practicing lawyer since 2006. Can you provide the highlight reel for us in your view? Which were the pivotal moments in your career?
2: One of the pivotal moments for me was before I started practicing, um, I was elected Editor-in-Chief of the Law Review at the end of my second year of law school. And I was the first person of color to ever be Editor-in-Chief of the Law Review. Um, So it was a big deal um, at my law school. Um, It was also incredibly validating for me. um, And I just, I carried that with me going forward. Um, You know, this sort of, what it meant to be the first, seeing how much it mattered to some of the alumni, um, seeing how much it mattered to my colleagues. Um, You know, of course, I always had that from my parents of what it meant to be a representative. But in the law, I felt it acutely and somewhat differently when that happened. Um, So for me, that was a pretty big moment. Um, You know, I've been blessed in that. I've liked every legal job I've had But obviously working as an assistant U.S. attorney, I I still think about the kind of routine of standing up in court and introducing myself and saying, my name is Lola Velasquez Aguilu, and I I represent the United States of America. I I felt super proud every time I said that. Um, And even when I say it to you now, I mean, it's something that I carried with me and I took very seriously um, the privilege and honor of representing the United States in court. Uh, So, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office was just this incredible place where I had such strong relationships. There's that line in the movie, Speed, about relationships formed in really intense circumstances. You know, that's the thing about when you're in in trial with folks, you're in the trenches with them. Anybody who's ever tried a case knows the kind of deep bonds you form with your trial partners. You basically, like, live with them for months on end. Um, And I love that about the U.S. Attorney's Office. You know, those, the, it, it, they weren't just my colleagues, they were my family. I had my kids while I was working there. I think my, my son, because of my trial schedule, I think he celebrated his first five birthdays at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, it took it, I think the first time that he, we had a birthday dinner not there, he was like, whoa, this is different. Um, but it was such a big part of our lives. I really cherish those years. Um, and as far as, you know, highlights, I'm, I'm proud, of course, of what I was able to accomplish in helping to diversify the judiciary. Um, it was a problem to be appointed by Governor Walz. Obviously, when the attorney general called me to work on the Chauvin prosecution, you know, I knew that for me, having worked on first-degree murder appeals as a law clerk, uh, murder cases are, are really challenging. They're emotionally taxing. It's like nothing else I have worked on over the course of my career. But I was extremely privileged to be able to work on that case, to be able to be a part of what I hope we accomplished, for the, for, obviously for the community and for the family, but I think, I think for the legal profession as well.
1: We could do a full hour podcast just on the Derek Chauvin trial. What was it like to work on such an important history-making case? And how did your personal and career background contribute to your role on this team?
2: My personal background, definitely, we had a very diverse team of lawyers who were working on this case, diverse in um, the type of experience people brought to the table, obviously diverse in in race and gender and age and background. Um, And the perspective that each of us brought to the table, I think, was ultimately really important because you know we were sort of trying to understand how different jurors might view this this case but also trying to serve segments of our community who were very skeptical of the ability to achieve justice and so i think one thing that was for me very significant was you know obviously i felt we needed to bring a level of rigor to this we needed to approach this in a new way to leave no stone unturned to challenge our assumptions about the way things are done in a way that, you know, where, where there could be only one result. But obviously I also came to this as the child of a police officer and feeling like it was really time to show people that this is not policing. And that those in law enforcement will step up and will say, this is not what the the profession represents. This is not how law enforcement serves communities. And obviously I've never been a police officer, but as the child of a police officer, I felt very much that this was in service of my mom and other police officers like her. I thought all the time about, you know, and it pained me sometimes. I would watch the videos because I couldn't help but think if a cop like my mom had showed up that day, there's
1: no doubt in my mind that George Floyd would be alive. Wow. That's just an incredible perspective that you had, and I'm sure contributed greatly to the team. Just having that background and perspective, you know, I, I've got to ask, what was it like to receive the verdict? You
2: know, I remember going. I would say I went to the courthouse. Some of it felt normal in some sense. You know what I mean? I mean, you have to remember, like once you're in this trying a case, you're just trying a case, and The larger implications, there's not something that we thought about on a daily basis. Um, We just had to get in there to do our work. Um, What I remember is I was. um, it was really secured. Obviously, everything was really locked down, so there's lots of tight security. And so very few people could actually be on the floor of the courthouse where the courtroom was. And I can't remember why, because I wasn't typically there, because I was working in a different part. But I was there. And, you know, Derek Chauvin walked by at one point and I felt such sadness. I I felt tremendous sadness for the Floyd family always because obviously they had lost their brother. They had, I mean, the day when we, when we did some of the medical testimony and they had to watch the videos over and over and over again, it was incredibly hard for them. So to grieve your loved one, to have your loved one die in that way, and then to have to grieve them so publicly, I I felt such sadness for them, right? No matter what we did, no matter what an amazing job we did, that was still their brother in that video. It was still their loved one who they'd never be able to see or talk to again. But I also felt such pity for Derek Chauvin and sadness because I kept thinking, I just wished for his sake that he could have done different. Every time I watched the video, I just thought, I I felt like I wanted in my heart to will him to stand up. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I don't know what circumstances in his life led him to that moment,
1: but it makes me sad for him. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all that with us. It certainly was emotional for all of us following the case. So I can't imagine what it felt like being in your shoes. I'd like to shift gears just a little bit. As we are well aware, there are few Latinx individuals in the legal profession, and the statistics are stark. For example, 5% of law firm associates and 2% of partners are Latinx or Hispanic. What are some challenges you have faced navigating such a homogeneous industry? And on the flip side, how have you been able to leverage your Latinidad for success?
2: I think one of the challenges, which isn't unique to Latinas, um, but is more a challenge that I think all women of color face is we're segmented into these little boxes. Like if it's, you know, you can't just be a woman, you have to be a certain type of woman. And when you have stereotype layered on top of you, you're so often then cast in that way. And it has it has the effect of robbing you of... Um, of your substance and your emotion. So for example, when I'm regarded as the angry Latina or the fiery Latina, there have certainly been moments in my career when I feel very strongly about something and I am not afraid of advocating and speaking up. And I have literally had moments when someone actually thought they were being defensive or supportive of me. Like, yeah, Lola, you know, she's reacting that she can't help but react that way. You know, she's She's been this woman of color in this predominantly white male profession, and she really had to struggle. And so, you know, as though I'm somehow defensive, and that's what, I'm, that's what they're seeing. And not the, that the substance is of such a nature that it requires their attention, or that my emotion mm-hmm. is a reflection of how strongly of an issue this is, or how much something has to get addressed. I'm not someone who gets angry at work. I'm not someone who yells at people, but you display the slightest bit of emotion and it gets amplified because it's validating of a stereotype. And that gets laid on our shoulders all of the time, even by the most well-intentioned people. Um, it's exhausting. There's a certain amount of resiliency that you have to be able to demonstrate over and over and over again. And at times a bravery to be able to identify what is happening and call it out. So there have been moments when I've said, if you hear my tone right now, please make no mistake that it is a reflection of how I feel about this issue, what I believe about this issue, or the way I'm, I'm perceiving your reaction to it. And, you know, does it help? I don't know. Right. But sometimes maybe I hope it. sometimes is enough to say to someone don't take this other than what it is, which is a substantive position being delivered to you in a clear and concise way as would any of my colleagues. But, you know, we we don't get as much leverage in that space. Mm -hmm. Okay. You asked me, how has it benefited me? Right. I do think that when you navigate as an only you know, I, I, th- I think there's there's aspects of who I am that I've be- I've been over the course of my life very attuned to other people's cues. So I I, I you know one of the things I, I think people say about me is I have a pretty high EQ, and I think there's some element of that is sort of watching other people, seeing how they react to you, having to understand nuance and inference, um, but also having to be objective about it. Um, so that you're not constantly seeing bad intention all over the place. So, you know, I think that one of the benefits that I have, as is, is, is strange as it is to say this, is I've lived a lifetime of facing these stereotypes and expectations. And with that, you develop a certain toolkit to confront these situations, to be able to see different people's perspective, to be able to, um, you know, meet the moment.
1: And I, that is absolutely a strength. I agree. Thank you for sharing that, and also what you said about just naming it, so that no one, there's no confusion as to your uh, emotional um, or or your impassioned, you know, observation. I think is something that a lot of uh, diverse associates um, can actually take from this and apply it to their own. Even
2: hearing you say that, I react even to the word emotion because it, it's so often I feel like I'm not even bringing emotion to the table, but that's how it gets named. Um, you know, so I challenge all of our allies when they're when they're when they you know working with a, a woman of color and she's being the zealous and passionate advocate that we are trained to be. I would I would I would urge them and caution them around the way that they perceive that.
1: And Lola, you've, you know, in this realm, you've certainly devoted considerable time and effort to advancing diversity in the law, particularly increasing the number of people of color and women on the bench in Minnesota. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that work and what motivated you to do it.
2: So Early in Governor Dayton's tenure, I had these, you know, good friends, very prominent Latino attorneys and black attorneys. Who were being named as finalists for various positions in the judiciary, but then weren't getting picked. And what stunned me at first is that there were, everyone was sort of celebrating Governor Dayton just because of the diversity of these finalists. And I had to sort of remind them, but wait a second, he's not actually picking those people. And, you know, for there are, to your point, you started this right reminding us that there was only 2% of law firm partners are Hispanic. So when someone is, Raising their hands for the judiciary and their name publicly, there is a professional toll that comes with this, right? Your partners are then wondering, is this someone who's going to leave? So folks are raising their hands and coming forward at great personal sacrifice, not getting selected, mm-hmm. and the governor was getting all of this great credit. And I, I said, well, hold on a minute. That's not right. I mean, luckily for me, I, I have not, the bench is not something that I aspire to. Um, So I felt like I had, you know, um, the freedom to to speak openly about the issue and to advocate on behalf of my community. And so several of us from the Hispanic Bar Association asked for a meeting with the governor's office and we showed them the numbers. Um, And, you know, you always get this response of, well, the pipeline or there aren't people. And I just thought that's a myth because I knew who was out there. And I knew that there were people out there who were ready and qualified and who would be exceptional judges. Um, and so, you know, I started working with other sort of like minded individuals who are passionate about these issues to both make sure that those people in the pipeline knew that we saw them and that they got the encouragement they needed to apply, but also to make sure we were educating those stakeholders to make sure that they were aware of the realities of the pipeline and that they were also aware of. The need to make these decisions. You know, it's so interesting to see the way that bias can influence judicial selection. That's something we had to be very intentional about. But it's something that for me was just incredible. I was so lucky. I clerked for two judges who were diverse Alan Page, who was the first African American on the Minnesota Supreme Court, and Judge Ann Montgomery, who one of the first female judges in the state of Minnesota. She actually, um, you know, she had a child while she was or actively employed as a judge. She was the first to do that before FMLA. They're both, you know, breaking glass ceilings, and it was incredibly impactful for me to have them as role models. And so I felt very strongly the importance of having people like them on the bench, of having a diverse bench. But there were these barriers that needed to be addressed.
1: And taking this further from, from the bench, what do you think it will take to diversify the legal field, big law, in-house, and government sectors alike?
2: So it's interesting. I, I spoke at a CLE last year that kind of looked at this, like, why haven't we made more progress over the last 40 years? And it's, I, I forced myself to look back at all of the work that's been done going back to the first ABA commission on race in the profession. And it's pretty interesting to see how long we have had the tools that we need to make a difference. What it will take, I think, is the people who stand in positions of power of just making the choice and reforming their organizations to institutionalize bias interrupters. You know, the reason why we were able to diversify the judiciary in Minnesota is at the end of the day because Governor Dayton and Governor Walls were willing to make the choice to appoint diverse judges. One of the things that we would see when we would do it the due diligence, we'd sort of call around with um, about the candidates in order to vet them before the governor would make his decision. I think folks made more calls. Ch- so when they're doing a diligence on a diverse candidate, I think they call more people and I think they receive more feedback. And so the, the interesting thing about that, right, is calling more people. Why? Is it because part of us, there's a little bit of a safety bias that we're trying to manage against. We're saying, OK, well, this is a potentially an unsafe choice. So let me dig as deep as possible to, to make myself feel like this is more safe. And so we're holding those individuals to a much higher standard. Often, what we would see is with diverse candidates, folks bring up stuff from 15 years ago, things that the other people wouldn't be held accountable for, it would be not even remembered. Mm-hmm. And there's research that I think helps us understand this phenomenon. One of the studies I cite all of the time is this study called Writing in Black and White, where they took this memo. They gave it to 100 law firm partners, told half the partners had been written by a black associate, and the other half had been written by a white associate. And exact same piece of work product. And consistently, people saw the errors with the black associate, and they ignored them or they missed them. They didn't flag them or identify them with the
0: white associate.
2: With the white associate, they thought the memo was demonstrative of great potential. With the black associate, the memo was demonstrative of an inability to make it a weakness, and so it just goes to show that what we, the way that our bias influences the, the, who gets to make mis- quote unquote mistakes, whether we characterize something as a mistake in and of itself, and, and who we view as having promise and potential versus who we view as having too, you know, too many challenges or obstacles. And that was, I think, super important for the commission to understand so that when they went out and they did their diligence, they could try to manage against this. We have to put practices in place that we're going to call the same number of people. If something else comes up, we're going to discuss it and evaluate whether this is something that actually bears on the qualities and characteristics that are relevant to the bench. And I think in law firms, it's got to be the same thing in Medtronic when we're hiring. You know, one of the things that I recommend is before you hire someone, be very clear about the qualifications and credentials that you're looking for and understand how they translate to the job. Because you may get feedback or input or you may have a, a, a read on somebody that might, you might find unsettling. But if it's, if it's not related to one of those qualities or characteristics, you have to ask yourself, how does it actually fit in? And is it just your brain sort of reacting to that safety bias? So we have to be willing to sort of understand that this is all human nature. That study writing in black and white, it wasn't like all the reviewers were white. They were diverse as well. So this is, this is something that all of us experience. What we need to step back and evaluate our practices, our procedures, how we operate as organizations in order to introduce these bias interrupters in order to ensure we have actually merit-based processes. And then we have to be willing to make the decisions to advance diverse
1: individuals. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that insight um, and also generally for joining us. I know I've learned so much on this uh, podcast episode. And before we adjourn, we have one more question, given that it is Latinx Hispanic Heritage Month. Uh, What does this month mean to you and how do you celebrate? Practically speaking, the
2: month means a lot of speaking opportunities. And I go to the HMBA annual conference So, plug for the HMBA. I, I think that these are important opportunities to highlight members of our community. You go back to what I was saying about the pipeline to remind people that we may only be 2% of law firm partners, but we're, there's still 2% of law firm partners who are Latinx, who have made it, who have stayed with it, Um, Although, of course, there's lots of work left to be done. So, you know, I think it's I think that this month is an important opportunity to stand back and reflect on our accomplishments, to take a moment to celebrate our place at the table um, and to help educate our allies and our friends about what, you know, what we continue to carry with us as we make it, try to make it in this profession.
1: Well, thank you, Lola for being with us and celebrating Latinx Hispanic Heritage Month with us through this podcast episode. Please be on the lookout for future podcast episode wherever you get your podcast.